Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have a very special guest who I saw speaking years ago at a Freud Meets Buddha conference, which I've always attended to get my continuing education requirements. Dr. Ronald Siegel is an assistant professor of psychology part-time at Harvard Medical School, where he has taught for over 35 years. A longtime student of mindfulness meditation, he serves on the board of directors and the faculty of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy and the faculties of the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion at Cambridge Health Alliance and the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He teaches internationally about mind-body medicine and the application of mindfulness and compassion practices in psychotherapy and other fields. He has written and edited several books, but his most recent, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, is out now. Welcome, Ron. Thanks so much for having me. So I think the timeliness of this book is perfect because obviously in today's day and age, it seems like with the onslaught of social media and the ability for people to just gain kind of power and influence very quickly, there's this seeking to be special. So can you talk to us about that and also what it means to be ordinary? Sure. I think you hit the nail on the head when you identify social media as something that has amplified a problem that has always been difficult for us throughout humanity. The problem that we're talking about is our tendency to compare ourselves to others. How am I doing? How do I look? How did I sound? Just now I had the thought, did I stumble when beginning when beginning to introduce this, this topic? And how should I how should I introduce it? This kind of constant self-monitoring inner spectator that, that's evaluating ourselves, that's very, very hooked on wanting to feel good about ourselves and really wanting to avoid moments in which we crash or feel not good enough or feel inadequate. And why are we caught in this? Well, we're caught in this and have been for a very long time because of our evolutionary history. If you look on the African savanna, they'll point out this pattern in species after species after species. There's a dominant male over there surrounded by literally a harem of reproductively promising females. There's a group of usually younger males practicing their skills to try to become dominant. Those who were dominant had a better chance of having reproductive success, and they had a better chance of directing resources toward their kids or toward whoever's caring for their kids. And therefore, their genes propagated more. Figuring out how to ramp it up, it took Mark Zuckerberg and social media uh, to do that. Because I don't know about you, but I don't see many Facebook, Instagram posts that suggest, you know, woke up this morning, had the runs again, afraid I'm going to get a bad performance review at work, and my partner is going to leave me. No, it's like, here I am in a fantastic place, doing fantastic things with fantastic, beautiful people, and you're not included. It would be as though we we're spending all day reading our own crime and poverty statistics and comparing what we see to other people's travel brochures. Most of us feel like, oh my gosh, 
I'm clearly not living life as I should. And you see these surveys of young people, they're totally heartbreaking. You know, the percentage of young people who think that if I don't start an internet startup or I'm not a social media influencer, by the time I'm 25 or 30, I will have failed terribly in life. And you see the proportion of people who expect to have advanced degrees and the proportion of people getting advanced degrees and the mismatch, it's horrifying. We're sadly very addicted to trying to get approval or acceptance in the social media realm. And unfortunately, there's no way to do that reliably because unless we live in Lake Wobegon where women are strong, all of the men are good looking and all of the children are above average, we're going to fall behind. So how do we get out ourselves out of this? Because it's exactly like you said, you know, this feels thickening and I can attest to it. We were, my husband and I were away in Europe this summer and I was taking pictures of the people taking pictures of themselves because I was so fascinated by the way that the vanity and the amount of time that people spent taking a picture, redoing a picture, doing the poses. And it was mostly women who were taking the picture, who were in the picture, mostly men who seemed as though they had been brought along to be their photographers for the trip, not a partner in travel. And to watch this unfold, because here we were, we were in Greece in this amazing landscape, walking and hiking and looking around and everybody was obsessed with making sure they were in the right spot that was Instagram worthy. Yeah, it's really, really painful to watch it. It's really, really painful when we get caught up in it ourselves. You know, there's a chapter in my book called Selfie Esteem, which is exactly (laughs) about what, what you were describing in Greece, how we get so caught in this because it feels so good. A lot of studies where they put people in functional MRI machines, scanners that can look at brain activity, and they expose them to fake social media feeds. And you see when people get a like for their posts, you know, the nucleus accumbens, this reward center, in our brain just goes crazy. It just lights up the same way it does literally with cocaine, the same Mm -hmm. way it does literally with a gambling win, the same way, you know, so this is tapping into a very basic part of ourselves. The really good news is while we have a very powerful instinct towards social comparison, we also have other instincts. Neurons that fire together, wire together. If we actually exercise those instincts, those parts of the brain beef up and we have more of a tendency to do that. So what are these alternatives? Well, safe social connection. When I'm working professionally with clients or patients, when I'm in a teaching role, what if I were more focused on trying to connect with the other than show them that I'm smart or in some way special? And we know what this is like when we're in ordinary nice friendships. When we're out with a friend and we're being really honest, the difficulties of life, the fact that everything's impermanent, noise changing and how hard that can be. The shit storm that is the beginning of the school year. Whatever. <laughs> quite literally, particularly when we're honest about our vulnerabilities, we're able to say, you know, I keep feeling inadequate because I find myself comparing myself to this other person or this inner ideal or something I see online. And that person says, I feel something similar. And then we relax. And part of what happens is our whole sense of self shifts. Instead of me being concerned with how Ron's doing and what are people thinking about Ron, and when our sense of self, our boundary in a sense, expands to be larger than just our individual self, all these preoccupations start to fall away. And it's like, 
you know, it's okay. I actually enjoy being vulnerable. I enjoy allowing you to know me and really getting to know you and relaxing and letting go of this whole other addictive enterprise. So what happens if you can do that in the moment and then you step out of the moment and the hamster wheel goes, right? And it's like, oh gosh, did I say the right thing? Did I reveal too much? You know, what are they going to think about me? Oh my God, I shouldn't have told them that my kid, you know, had a huge tantrum and was crying and I had to drag him to school and push him into the, <laughs> into the classroom, right? Like, I think oftentimes there's like almost that vulnerability hangover that people have yeah, after yeah. they've opened themselves up. We're different people in different moments, aren't we? Right. In the moment that we're with our friend, it feels natural and good and fine. But then this other me or maybe this other part of me in another circumstance and thinks, oh, my God, what are they going to think about me? How do I look? I've revealed so much. How can we be aware of what's happening in the heart and the mind as well as what's happening in the sensory world and our you know, taste and touch and sight and smell? Most mindfulness practices start with kind of centering the attention on some sensory object. You're going to pay attention to the feeling of the breath in the body, the sounds around us, perhaps the feeling of the feet. And what we do is when these thoughts enter, we gently redirect our attention back to the sensory experience. Doing that over and over starts to give us metacognitive awareness, which is the ability to see a thought as just a thought. And as we develop that capacity, well, then we're better able to work with those thoughts when they show up afterwards. Just noticing all the times that my feeling about myself goes up or down. An email comes in that suggests that maybe I didn't do such a good job at something or somebody's disappointed in me. Uh, another one comes in where somebody likes something I did or is interested in something I did. Huh. And the more we can sort of observe these fluctuations, the more we can also watch these thoughts coming and going and maybe not take them so seriously. We actually know the key to well-being. The answer is the quality of our relationships. Mm. When we feel basically like we have trusting connections with other people, we thrive in life. And it turns out that we thrive physically more as well as thrive psychologically more. There has to be a sense of trust. If either of us were in trouble, we'd be there. For me, as I was reading the book, I found it so validating, you know, particularly about how much we are hardwired for so many of these experiences. And that no matter how much meditation we do, how much therapy we do, how much seeking for enlightenment we want, and we're, we're you know, all kind of striving now, that seems to be like, am I awakened? If you get there maybe once in your life, like you have that moment, that to me is amazing. <laughs> you know, otherwise it feels like it's always this process. And I'm curious as we're talking what your thoughts are on this positive psychology movement and this like shift towards happiness as being the outcome that we should be aiming for. Sure. Now, the positive psychology movement is really interesting. And one of my other hats, I'm called the medical editor of a special report from Harvard Health Publications on positive psychology. And I've been following the research on this for now over a decade. Early in the positive psychology movement, there was a lot of emphasis on happiness in the sense of good feeling. And as the field has matured, it's gotten much more oriented toward how do we find what we might consider called self-acceptance. You know, I have a, a couple of good friends named Bill and Susan Morgan, who are uh, both psychotherapists and uh, are, they have a number of unusual qualities, one of which is they sat a four-year silent mindfulness meditation retreat together. Not four day, not four week, not four month, but four years. Now, they, they softened it in the third year preparing for reentry, but this was a very interesting experiment. 
Wait, four years, they sat in complete silence together. Pretty much, except for consultations with teachers and a few things like that. But basically, they were doing meditation retreat schedule for the better part of four years. And uh, their their friends, myself included, were very interested, like, what's going to happen? You know, what's, what's going to be the result of this experiment? Because this is like taking mindfulness practice very seriously, right? <laughs> and um, when they came out, Bill was still very much Bill, and Susan was still very much Susan. And in fact, they reported that they still had the same emotional reactions that they had before doing this. You know, something upsetting would happen, like there was a, a snafu at the airport where they're going to miss a flight, and all of a sudden, all the adrenaline is running. No, I've got to get on that flight and the whole thing. But what they noticed was it didn't have such a long tail. The emotions were metabolized and they were gone. So this is part of where the positive psychology movement has gone, is to realize that, oh, it's the ability to fully feel and metabolize and be present to everything including mm -hmm. the full range of emotions, that leads to, and I would use the word well-being rather than happiness, because we associate happiness with the like on, uh, on social media, whereas well-being is what happens when we're able to accept and integrate all the different parts of ourselves, allow thoughts and feelings to come and go. And because of this, we can connect more deeply to other people. When we can really accept ourselves and all these different aspects of ourselves, well, we become less judgmental toward others. All these forces come together and move in a very different direction than where social media tends to pull, but in a direction which is actually sustainable. Well, and I like this concept of emotional health focused on the ability to tolerate the range of emotions, just as physical health isn't never getting sick, right? It's about getting sick and being able to recover from the sickness. So how do we recover emotionally from those experiences that are less tolerable than right. the feelings of joy, contentment, connection, happiness, you right. know, the emotions we've deemed more negative. I think there are a number of pathways to this. One of them is in general, becoming more mindful. Because you know, one of the things we do in mindfulness practice is we may be meditating and an itch or an ache may arise. And instead of immediately changing our posture or, or scratching, we just turn the attention to the discomfort and stay with it. And we notice, oh, well, that's interesting. It kind of reaches a crescendo and then mellows out. If I can ask our viewers to join us in this, if you're not driving, just close your eyes for a moment and take a breath or two just to feel what's happening in the body. And then generate a little bit of sadness, not the saddest thing ever, but just something to create a bit of a feeling of sadness. I don't want it to be overwhelming. But I want you to particularly notice what sadness feels like in the body. Where do you feel the sensations associated with sadness? And maybe even put your hand on that part of the body as though to comfort or be with yourself where you feel the sadness, just to feel it as a physical sensation. And then next, let's generate a little bit fear or anxiety, not the scariest thing ever, something light, and notice where that is in the body. And maybe put your hand over that region and just breathe with that sensation for a moment. And then we'll shift to one of the other difficult emotions, which is anger or annoyance. Generate a little of that. And if you're a super nice person who's never angry or annoyed, and you're in America, just think of somebody in the other political party, whoever that might be for you, <laughs> and you'll probably be able to feel some because we're so polarized. 
And put your hand over the part of the body where you feel that. And just feel those sensations. And finally, to go with the pleasant ones too, allow yourself to generate a little bit of joy. Just a little bit of positive, joyous feeling. And notice where that is in the body. And maybe put your hand over the part of the body where you feel that. And we can open our eyes again. What I noticed doing that practice is every one of these emotions, positive and negative, has as a basic component a physical sensation. And then there's also an image, perhaps, that we use to generate it, or a thought that, that helped to generate it. But this is kind of what emotions are made up out of. As we practice mindfulness a bit, we get to see, oh, this is emotions. For example, if, if I feel that my friend has done something selfish, I'll start in with the thought, I can't believe you did that after all I've done for you. And that'll bring up the psychophysiological arousal of anger. And that arousal in the body will actually fuel the next thought. And this can go on for a few minutes, for a few hours, days, or decades, as we know, right? <laughs> uh, so when we tune into this stuff just as sensations in the body, it helps to interrupt that. It helps us to see it for what it is and not get so caught in the narrative. And the interesting thing, and this is how it ties into the whole theme of the book and what we've been talking about, almost always our narratives about difficult emotions are focused on me. When I asked you, for example, to generate a little bit of anxiety, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, answer if you like or not, sure. but um, did you, and I ask our listeners at, at home, did you think of global climate change? No. Now, you know, realistically, were we to step back, a good argument could be made that that's something we should be anxious about. Maybe you say we should be so anxious about it was too big, but but usually we think about something closer to home, right? Yeah. Something about me or mine or, you know, in this moment, it's how I'm doing in the podcast or what's, you know, or it could be what's happening to my kids or my wife. Well, and um, it's so interesting because mine was the same scene for all almost Ever, like the same oh, experience generated all the feeling. Oh, that's interesting. It, it must have been a complex and intense moment. It was it was just my son deciding this year he wants to walk himself to school. Ah, uh, mm, mm, and yeah. me standing watching him, which might make me cry right now. Mm -hmm. And and all the the fear, like the sadness that he's getting older, that he wants to do these, the joy that he's getting older, that he wants to do this, the fear that something could happen to him on the way to school, even though he just crosses one street and I watch. So it was like all of that tied up in one little moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is what happens when we become sensitized to what's really going on inside. We notice, oh, my gosh, we're so emotionally reactive, like everything is actually intense. You know, there's an interesting image um, that comes from ancient Tibet, and they had a myth about a kingdom called uh, Shambhala. The highest attainment was to be a Shambhala warrior. And these were not warriors with spears and knives and that kind of thing. These were warriors of the heart who had so much courage that they could feel everything. You were a cow without its skin, with every mm. nerve ending exposed, really relaxing defenses to the point where we felt everything. Is that possible? Again, this is an ideal, so I don't mm -hmm. think any of us are, are, are going to land there tomorrow, but it's an interesting direction, right? And can we, can I pause you for a second there? Because sure. I want to tie this into this notion of balancing conspicuous consumption and conspicuous frugality. Because uh, yeah. I liked that you addressed both of those. Clearly, the world is 
organized to sell us stuff in order to raise our self-esteem. You know, I love the uh, the system at the airports. You know, we're at the gate and it's like, okay, first class passengers board first. Okay, they paid an ungodly sum for the ticket. But then we move into the status peddling, right? The mm-hmm. executive platinum plus passengers will board next, followed by the platinum, followed by the gold and the silver. And God forbid you should be one of the eight proletariat allowed <laughs> to slink on the plane at the end. Which is all it's really become is a race to whether or not you can fit your carry-on luggage exactly. in the bin. Let's be clear. It's done through selling social status. I feel very fortunate. My dad taught economics and I had an unusual experience when I was, I don't know, eight or 10 years old, uh, standing on a driveway in suburban Long Island and a Cadillac drove by and he said, oh, that's a Cadillac. People buy Cadillacs as what's called a status symbol. And Thurston Veblen wrote in 1899, a landmark book in economics called The Theory of the Leisure Class, where he was the first economist to point out that sometimes people buy things just to show other people that they can buy Mm -hmm, them. mm -hmm. As my wife is fond of pointing out, one can suffer from the opposite, because I suffer from this, Mm -hmm. conspicuous frugality, which is, oh, I don't need that stuff. I'm so liberated. I'm so above the fray. I'm so enlightened. I'm so enlightened that all of my stuff says Kirkland on the back because I get it at Costco and I get it when it's on sale at Costco. And I don't need this because you can get hooked on anything. You can get hooked on any kind of image thing. But one of the things we do get hooked on is trying to show people that we're somehow advanced in some way, whether it's showing off the luxury items or showing off the lack of need for luxury items. I, I think we all can get hooked in this in, in some way. And like just buying the things we like and need, that's hard without any without any thought of what is what how, how does that make me seem? One of the things that makes the self-esteem roller coaster so painful and makes it hurt so much when we have a sense of failure. Most of us have these experiences starting very early on. One of the exercises in the book is is a self-esteem autobiography, where you go back to the very earliest memory you have of either feeling good about yourself, hey, look at me, or feeling bad about yourself, hey, don't look at me, you know, I failed in some way. And they start very early. And then they continue throughout our, our lives. And often when these occur, they feel like too much when we're a kid. You know, we we distract ourselves, we block it out, and it's left as a kind of unprocessed, unmetabolized injury. It's not big T trauma, like you know something horrible happening, it, though it could be. But mm-hmm. often it's it's what we call small T trauma, just hurts that we never fully process. So part of the work that we need to do is using the current situation as a doorway to heal the past hurts. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what's this about here at this, you know, at the speaker's gathering? Well, what am I feeling exactly? What does that remind me of? Oh, I know what that reminds me of. Let me go there. Let me see if I can use this to be less addicted to needing to feel special. We have to be able to tolerate the disappointments and the hurts and the times that we stumble or don't live up to some expectation or another and be okay with that. The other piece is it's really important to differentiate self-compassion from self-esteem. You're a mom. I'll give you an example. Um, let's say your son, who's now at the age where of, of walking to school, um, 
tries out, well, the teams aren't probably the kind, let's say it's a few years in the future and he tries out for a team in middle school or mm-hmm. high school where there's only a certain number of kids can make the team. And he doesn't make, let's say the baseball team. And he comes home downtrodden and you want to be helpful. What we really need is to boost our kids' self-esteem and to boost our own self-esteem. And we're, we're tied into all this. You're going to say, oh, you know, oh, sweetheart, I'm, you know, I'm sorry you didn't make the, the team, but remember in the fall, you were on the basketball team and you were one of the star players and you guys made it to the regionals. Or I shouldn't call the coach. Right. Until or, the yeah, coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm back a generation. I forgot about how it's been these days. Wait a minute. I'm going to lobby. Why didn't my kid make it? Why did that other kid get on there? But in essence, we try to make the pain go away by getting a new self-esteem boost. The alternative is to help our child develop self-compassion. And that would look something like this. I wasn't so into baseball, but when I was your age, I was really interested in drama. And there was this, this, this great school play that was happening. And I thought I would be perfect for such and such part. You know what? The drama coach didn't choose me. And I was really downtrodden for a while. You know, that was really hard for me. And, you know, it's only slowly that I've come to realize that we all win some and we lose some. And we all sometimes get to have this good feeling of, yay, I made it. And this painful feeling of, no, not this time. Sweetie, let me give you a hug. I know it's hard. But how do we do that if we haven't learned to tolerate that discomfort within ourselves. Well, bingo. I mean, yes, I, I think we have to learn to do it, to tolerate in ourselves. We have to be able to be with our own sadness, which means doing the work of remembering what it was like not to be picked for the school play. When we bury feelings, we bury them alive. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, they keep coming back in some way. Right? Yeah, I always call it like the whack-a-mole, you know, that yeah. game that you like whack one down, but it pops, it just keeps moving somewhere else. It's just going to pop back up it, it just if you keeps keep whacking it up. down. So we need, we need a way to develop the courage ourselves to be able to be with the hurts. And all these puzzle pieces kind of fit together because if we're developing warm and connected relationships with others, where we're making a connection rather than an impression, if we're not barking up the wrong tree, if we're not putting all our energy into trying to feel better by having some achievement or another that's going to, for a brief period, feed our self-esteem addiction, but then lead us vulner- leave us vulnerable to the next collapse. Well, and I think too, trying to to show that you're special or you're, you know, that you don't have those experiences, those real human experiences take us away from the ability to be vulnerable with others and connect. Absolutely. And it's one of the real tragic mythologies of our culture, this crazy fantasy that real winners are just nonstop on top, right? Mm -hmm. They're just vanquishing all enemies it's completely impossible. Let's say you really are at the top of your game. You're literally an Olympic athlete and you literally win the gold medal. Michael Phelps. Okay. What are the chances you're going to do it in four years? Michael Phelps, I guess he did it. I don't really know the history. Eight years, 12 years, 16 years. At some point, it's going to end. And the other thing that happens, which is which is really tragically painful, is we recalibrate so mm-hmm. that you know that same Olympic swimmer some years ago when he or she won some kind of regional championship i don't know the this world well but won something they felt great you may appreciate this one of the things i do sometimes in training psychotherapists is i'll remind us that we all work pretty hard to get a terminal degree right and 
when we got those degrees, I say, remember how that felt? And most of us felt pretty good. Mm-hmm. We had we had arrived there. And then I say, how many of you woke up this morning feeling, you know, I feel so proud. I feel so good about myself. I have my terminal degree. And everybody starts laughing, right? Except sometimes if it's a big enough group, there's like one newly minted therapist, they begin to raise their hand. They say, why is everybody laughing? Because they're still <laughs> they're still with the glow. Right, they're still enjoying that, that moment. <laughs> but the problem is, it fades. We then need something else in order to feel we're somehow good enough. Well, and that I think ties in with the Buddhist concept of impermanence, you know, that nothing is permanent. Everything is always in this state of change. I haven't found a good argument against that one. (laughs) Everything I've ever observed in all realms of my life says it's all fluid. It's all in constant flux, isn't it? Last kind of question before we wrap up, even though I could keep you on for quite some time. How do you see death as the greatest informer of how to live? And how do you see us being able to tolerate mortality and use it as a way to enrich our lives rather than to defend against it as something that isn't going to happen to us? I I once had the the opportunity to visit the Tiger Cave Monastery in Krabi, Thailand. And um, it could best be described as a death theme park. Actual human skulls on the tables where you eat. It's like, if you have a death phobia, I guess that's the best exposure therapy you're going to get. Yeah, that's pretty intense. <laughs> if somebody in the community dies, their relatives will bring the body to the monks, not for gaining medical knowledge, but for just getting it, that mm. death is real. So they actually dissect the body to actually save in the present moment. And for me, the awareness of death is certainly one way to help disconnect from the self-esteem roller coaster to not take it so seriously because you know just like the bumper sticker that says whoever has the most toys when they die wins kind of might help you to disconnect from consumerism a little bit lighten up well you know whoever has had the most likes on facebook or instagram when they die wins obviously it's such a powerful leveler right Mm -hmm. it's like none of this matters Mm -hmm. none of this matters and even before death the person hunched over in the wheelchair, having difficulty keeping saliva in their mouth, you know, and then they say, oh, yes, she was once a um, a leading nuclear physicist. Not to mm-hmm. knock any of it, but clearly all the stuff that we attach to isn't last. It's, it's, it's going to slip through our fingers. So, well, how do I actually live in this moment? How do I actually appreciate this moment? And how do I live realistically? Because I think that uh, my impression is to be realistic is to realize that all the social comparison really is just leftover instincts that were useful for passing on our DNA on the African savanna and don't serve us very well now. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe I'm going to try to exercise those less and exercise more the instincts that bring about well-being in the present moment. So for people who want to start accepting being ordinary, where do you recommend they start? Other than your book, which, by the way, is fantastic. Great stories, anecdotes, quotes. You know, I think the approach of this book really can be helpful. I'm feeling less preoccupied with the self-esteem stuff. I'm doing better at the level of, you know, enjoying the simple things, making the social connections, seeing seeing the folly of my mind. So the good news is this can help, right? Uh, yeah. You know, N of one little study, it has helped. 
to be oriented in this way. In the book, I talk about a three-pronged approach to work with our heads, our hearts, and our habits. How we got hooked on whatever we got hooked on as the particular indicator for our self-esteem. It can be very interesting, like, where did I get the idea that being smart is what's important? Or where did I get the idea that being pretty or fit or kind or whatever it is, where did I get the idea that that is the measure I'm judging myself on? And this comes from the wild man cognitive therapist, Albert Ellis. He's examined this topic and he says, uh, so tell me, what's the scale that you use for your judgment? Is it like a cumulative GPA, let's say it's about intelligence since I graduated from college, or is it just last week? Like even how we measure this and feel good or bad about ourselves, because it's it's kind of crazy once mm-hmm. you start to, to examine the process. So we use our heads to really see the folly of it and to really see the patterns. Oh my gosh, caught in these judgments so frequently. I have to be able to open to the herd of the disappointment so that I'm not constantly addicted to finding another self-esteem boost to try to feel good about ourselves. And we can use mindfulness practices for that. Also, they're a component of it. And then it's really working with our habits. It's where do we put our energies, right? You know, if I have a moment to talk to a friend or even help somebody out versus a moment to take a selfie, maybe I'm going to choose the friend a little bit more often. Maybe at least diminishing or abstaining for some periods of time from the whole social media machine. You know, you, you hear the software engineers who develop the algorithms. They say the algorithms for hooking us on this are so good I develop them and I can't resist them. Mm-hmm. I keep needing to look at the, the social media feed. I, I feel it in my bones. I've got to do it. Well, we can work with that the way we work with other addictions and at least lay it aside for a while and putting our energies into deliberately cultivating gratitude. So I think it takes a three-pronged approach because these are powerful instincts and uh, they don't give up the ghost easily. Well, Dr. Siegel, Dr. Ronald Siegel, not to be confused with Dr. Daniel Siegel, which you talk about in the book, who is also amazing. Who's great and who's a friend and whose work pulls in, I think, parallel directions. Yes, yes. Who I saw, he spoke years ago when I was at Jewish Child and Family Services. He's wonderful, but not to be confused. So where can they find your work, my, well, my listeners? Well, the, the easiest thing is to go to my website, which is just Dr. Ron Siegel. There's a ton of free meditations you can experiment with if you want to get into mindfulness practice there. The meditations are sort of linked to different books and projects that I've done. There's information about this latest book. There's information about a course I did for the great courses on the science of mindfulness. If you want to take a deeper dive, you could check out. Well, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your insights, everything you shared today. I know this is going to be at the top of people's lists of re-listening to because there was so much great wisdom in this. So thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me and thank you for your thoughtful, insightful questions and for your openness and sharing your own experience because I mean, I feel it here and now when we share, when we share this stuff, that begins to detoxify it. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.